Tonight we're going to study the eventful story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom comes from the Hebrew roots meaning fasten, fortify, or strengthen, while Gomorrah means deep, copious waters. Genesis 14 tells us that they had three other neighboring towns in the plain, so collectively these five were known as the cities of the plain, referring to the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. You remember the Dead Sea, right? It has lots of salt and sulfur so much that your body can actually float in it. Don't believe me? Here, here's a picture of my parents floating it. Ah, what you see cannot be unseen. Anyways, the first mention of Sodom is in Genesis 13, and it mentions, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, you already get the idea that these people were evil, and you're going to see that in great detail tonight. But first, let's talk about location. An older theory placed Sodom and Gomorrah under the Dead Sea. However, since the Dead Sea has receded quite a bit in recent years, there really just haven't been any evidence found. So, in the 1970s, archaeologists went to work looking for these towns. Just south of the Dead Sea is a plain, so this is probably the plain the Bible talks about. And with excavations, they found two towns, probably Sodom and Gomorrah. For the Gomorrah location, they found that a rich diversity of crops were grown in the area, including barley wheat, grapes, figs, lentils, flax, chickpeas, peas, dates, and olives, an indicator that the area was well watered as indicated in Genesis 13.10. For the Sodom site, they even found evidence of a fiery destruction of the town where residents quickly fled and they found skeletons caught in the destruction. Careful excavation of the house labeled A22, the largest of those excavated, revealed that the fire started in the roof and then spread to the interior when the roof collapsed. Now this actually makes a lot of sense considering that Genesis 19.24 says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So there you go. A little bit about Sodom and Gomorrah and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, tonight we come to you to dig in more to what Genesis has to share with us. We dig into the life of Abraham and the incredible faith he continued to put in you day after day after day, year after year after year. He would continue to trust you with things, Lord, that he wouldn't see in his lifetime. He would continue to trust you with things, Lord, that he wouldn't see for years and years and years. But it's upon this trust, his faith, that you credit to him as righteous. Father, tonight we just pray that you continue to strengthen us, Lord, that we might trust you with more and more things in our lives, that we might see more and more of your promises come true, more and more miracles done in our life, that we just might trust you more. And that's our prayer tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we're picking up in chapter 17. And just to, just to give you a little bit of remembering, I guess, or a backdrop to this, 13 years have passed, 14 years since Abraham went out and saved Lot and brought him back with, with, all the, with all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had saved everybody from all those invading armies that came in. 13 years had passed, and it's got reinforced again that blessing that you are the guy, and it is through you that I will do incredible things, give you multitudes of nations that come after you. You have so many descendants, you can't count them, as if there was the number of sky, the stars in the sky or the number of sands in the, uh, I guess, in the sea. And so, God, <laughs> I kind of got stuck there. And so, God promises this amazing stuff. I'll give you the land. I'll give you descendants. I will make a people after you. You will be my people. It's incredible. It's awesome stuff. And throughout Abram's life, he gives him a reminder of this promise, of this covenant that he set way back when he called him out of Ur. 
So we pick up in 17, again, 13 years later, after he reinforced that covenant with him. And now Abraham's 99 years old. The Lord appears to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, that whole idea of blameless kind of gets us stuck sometimes. We think we have to be perfect. Anybody perfect here? Probably show of hands. You guys are amazing, right? I mean, the reality is that we all fall short. We're all a little bit broken. We're all a lot of bit broken. We sin in ways that we're embarrassed of. We do things that we don't want to do. We don't do the things that we want to do. All sorts of different things. And so when he says be blameless, he's saying trust me and follow me. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to the Wednesday morning class. You know, none of the commands that God's ever commanded are too hard for you. Do you guys get that? God says, follow me. It's not too hard to get up and follow him, right? God says, remember the Sabbath day. Anybody can't do that? Show of hands. Anybody cannot not commit adultery? Show of hands. I mean, the things he asks us are possible. They are doable. They are things that make sense, that are good for our lives, that actually would benefit us if we would follow them. They're actually protectors for us if we would obey his commands. But they're not so difficult, like we'd have to climb to the top of a high mountain to get there. It's, it's simply, do we want to, will we, turn our lives to follow him? And so God's going to ask Abram to do something in just a second that will test the very fabric of this ability for him to follow, or this desire of him to follow. But he says, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make a covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. He's coming back and he's affirming again this covenant that he made with him. Then Abram fell on his face and said, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but it now shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So God changes his name. He's still childless. He's 99 years old. He doesn't look like he's going to have any kids. And so they change his name from the father of many, or exalted father, to the father of a multitude of nations. Try going home to the wife and sharing that. Honey, I, I know God keeps promising he's gonna have, we're going to have kids, right? And he keeps saying that I'm going to have a lot of kids. Well, we still don't have any kids, but now he's changed it to, we're going to have a lot of nations come out after us. I mean, this is going to be incredible. And she's like, okay, whatever, honey. Right? And it talks about Abram's faith, and it actually talks about Sarah's faith as well. But they're human, and they struggled at different times. And the idea for Sarah that, that God was still going to come through at this point, had to be stretched in the boundaries of her trust, even of God. Even though he had protected them throughout her life, that he had been there every step of the way, that she had seen incredible things in her husband going and rescuing Lot, it still had to be on the borderline of, can I still trust this? Is it still possible? So God changes his name, and um, when God changes your name, it's prophetic and it's instructive. This will be, this is a sign that what I have promised will come about. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God kind of accentuates on this promise. Not only am I going to give you this land, not only are you going to have a ton of kids, 
but I will walk with your kids as I've walked with you. I'm not going to abandon them. I'm not going to let them go. I will walk with your kids as I've been with you. And he goes on later, just, just teach them about me, instruct them in my ways, tell them who I am. And, you know, as a parent, if you want to assure the fact that your kids know who God is, you got them for 18 years. Teach them who God is. Introduce them to the Bible. Talk about what the scriptures say. You've got 18 years to really share with them who God is, the difference he can make, the promises that are theirs. I think all too often we abdicate that role. And we leave it to schools or we leave it to the church or we leave it to somebody else. We've got 18 years. You know, every, it's interesting as you look at demographics, they say that Christian households are actually having almost twice as many kids as those of non-Christian households. And yet the number of Christians is dwindling, doesn't even make any sense, does it? Until you factor in that we're not teaching our kids. I mean, the, the culture around us is putting enough pressure on it, but if our kids don't know who God is, if they don't know what's true and what's not true, what's right and what's wrong, they don't remember God's promises or even know God's promises, what chance do you give them as they walk out of the house and go to college? We've got 18 years. And so that's just a little side of the thing, but that's God's command to Abram as well. Teach your kids and know that I will never leave them. Mike did, a, or did his master's on the youth culture. And actually, we changed some of what we do with youth to make sure that our kids could be in worship because the number one um, thing that will help your kids worship after they leave your house at 18 is that they developed a habit of sitting in worship. And it makes sense, right? Because youth group, a little different experience than sitting in church. And if they haven't got used to sitting in church and receiving and hearing and learning from a message, it's harder when they go out and they can't seem to find that youth group field church that they had grown up with. So we changed this to make sure that our kids could hear about God and, and resonate with his word and grow from his word. Okay, he continues on. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, and throughout the generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout the generations, whether born in your house or born in, with your money and from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. An everlasting covenant. And so God says, okay, Abram, I'm giving you all this stuff. I'm going to be your God and be your kid's God. This is what it looks like to follow me. And one of the first things I want you to do is I want you all to get circumcised. Now, circumcision was uh, prevalent in uh, some of the world at this time. Uh, it, it was not in Mesopotamia, it doesn't seem. Uh, it was not among some of the nations that were in Israel or Canaan at this time. But certain cultures did do it, so this was not an unknown phenomenon. People 
different peoples did it. And now God was saying, I want you guys to do it as a mark of my covenant. No exceptions. Do it in your part of my family. Don't do it. And the next verse says, uh, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of this foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God says, this is one of the first things that it looks like to be part of my family. I, I want all your males to be circumcised as a mark that they're mine, as a mark of obedience to me. I want you to do this, and it's almost like an Old Testament sacrament. When you got circumcised, you were adopted into God's family. You were now his, and nothing could separate you from that. And so God says, that's what I want you to do from generations after this. And what's crazy about that, even though, how many guys want to go do that right now? Right? All right. So, so the reality is it's not a possibly a very fun thing. In fact, when you get circumcised, there's at least a three-day period of pretty intense pain before it starts to subside. And yet God asked him to do this. And God said to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall call her name Sarah. Or, call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarah actually means princess, and she would be the princess of the nations that would come after her. Now, this was kind of an extension. It's through Sarah that this kid is going to come. It's not going to come through Ishmael, it's going to come through Sarah. And all of a sudden, not only has God asked him to go get circumcised, and not just him, but everybody in his, in his, uh, in his uh, group, I guess. That's a very wrong term. But anyway, any, everybody in his, his, his group. He now says it's going to be through Sarah that you have this kid. God has this ability to keep on causing us to struggle with trust, doesn't he? Even though we've seen God do incredible things in our life, when push comes to shove and we have to trust yet a new promise or even an old promise again, sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes we get scared. Sometimes we just don't know if we can trust that much again. Sometimes we just don't know if we can ever trust again. And yet God continues to go through and remind us that he's been there every single time and that he'll be there again. Trust me, he says. I wish we all trusted him. You know, if we all trusted him in tithing, we'd have like a $2.5 million budget. Yeah, we need to do capital campaigns. We could just write a check. Can you imagine if we all prayed every night for people in this congregation, for our friends and family, for people over the world, the kind of miracles that we'd see on a regular basis? Can you imagine if we all studied the Bible, how many opportunities God could give us to share our faith in ways that would connect home and touch people with this truth? Can you imagine if we were all in church every week, we'd have to build more because there wouldn't be enough room for all the people that come once in a while to all fit in the church, not even in the four services. Can you imagine if we were all faithful and trusted God that the things that he's, and those are like the, the most helpful things because there's blessing attached to each one of them, if we would just do those things, not even live the blameless life of the other stuff, but just trust him that what he says is true. And so Abraham gets excited. Abraham falls on his face and he laughs to himself and he says, shall a child be born to a man 100 years old? And yet you get the sense as you go through this that this was a laugh of joy. He was excited and you, partly you get that because God didn't rebuke him here. 
God's going to give me a kid through Sarah. This is incredible. This is nuts. How cool is that? So Sarah, who is 90 years old, bare a child. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And so all of a sudden, he remembers Ishmael, the one that he's kind of been banking on. He says, Don't forget Ishmael, Lord. Don't let him get lost in the shuffle here. There's already tension in the home, Lord. <laughs> Don't let him get lost in the shuffle. I know you've promised great things through him. Hagar told me he's going to be uh, the father of 12, na- or 12 kings that will come after him. But don't forget Ishmael, Lord. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall have, she shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. And so he's saying, I'll take care of Ishmael. I've already made promises. I'm going to follow through on those promises. You know, actually the, the religion of Islam um, bases their beginnings off of Ishmael. And they kind of pervert scripture a little bit, but they look to him as the father. And the moms that they've had throughout the time, and there's supposed to be 12 of them, and 11 have come, and so you might sometimes hear about they're looking toward the 12th imam, the one that will come and restore all things according to their theology. Um, but it's just interesting, even, even Islam, which is like the, the, the third great, I guess, um, religion of the day, gets its beginnings from scripture. They quickly leave scripture at that point, but but they get their beginnings from Scripture, and, and much of their theology is based off of it. Okay, so when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had told him. This gives you a sense of the leadership of Abraham, right? That he goes to his retinue of people, all his servants, everybody that was part of his retinue, and he says, all right, today we're all doing it. We're all getting it done. Why? Because God said. Not all of them believed in God the way Abraham did. Not all of them had confidence in God the way Abraham did, but they all had confidence in Abraham. So every one of them somehow went up and got circumcised that day trusting that for the next three days at least, God would protect their little band, trusting that God had their backs, that he would provide. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of this foreskin. And the other thing about Abraham that I love, every time, and, and again, God's showing up to Abraham every 10 or so years, right? And every time God asks him to do something, the next day he obeys. Can you imagine if God asked you to move to Africa and you started moving tomorrow, you just got the, I don't know, you wouldn't call the U-Haul. I don't know what you'd call it, but the reality is that you just picked up everything and you started off the next day. Can you imagine if God asked you to go um, give up your house and the next day you put it up for sale or gave it away to somebody or whatever it might be? Can you imagine God saying anything and then immediately obeying the next day, even though you were struggling, even though you trusted him as much as you could, even though every single time he asked Abraham to do something, the next day he obeys. There was no lag time. There was no excusing. There was no justifying. There was nothing of the sort. He just did. 
It's part of what being blameless before the Lord is. It's trusting him completely and following him completely. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of the house, those born in the house and those bought with the money of, from foreigner, were circumcised with him. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and, at the, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And so this is what I guess commentators leave a few weeks later, possibly a few months later. All these things that are going to transpire in the next few chapters all happen within this year. It's going to be a year from now, right, that he has Isaac. And so all this stuff is jam-packed in this next year. So a few weeks later or whatever it is, he looks up and he sees these three guys. And there's this amazing thing of hospitality back in the day. There was a, a cultural, a cultural um, expectation that you would take care of people that came to your door. There just was. And so if somebody was needing a, a place to stay and they were traveling through your town, you just took them in, no questions asked. In fact, it was your privilege to, to serve them in such a way because your hope is, is the next time you were on vacation, somebody would do the same thing to you. Kind of think back a few years for those of you that are old enough in the whole idea of hitchhiking. Apparently my uncle hitchhiked from Michigan to California. You would be scared to death to do that today, right? But he trusted that the next person would pick him up and take him to the next spot. And people did. Because people had picked them up in the past because it was a cultural understanding that that's just the nice thing to do. And so they took care of people back in the day. And yet, even with that cultural significance of, of taking care and showing hospitality to people, you get the sense here that Abraham recognized that these three guys were just a little bit different. Something was different about them. Something was special about them. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. This could have been an extreme politeness, but to run to somebody that was coming through, through your land is probably a little bit of a... A reach. Most people just have walked, oh, hey, we got some visitors, that's great. But the fact that he ran to them would suggest something. Little, little water we bought and wash your feet. Oh, and when he uses Lord here, it's, um, it could be referring to the fact that he recognized him as Lord, or it could just be a, a kind of a, a cultural nicety that you would say to somebody who was passing by. Let a little water be bought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly again to the tent, Sarah, and he said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Again, he was either really ADD and wanted things done quickly or, or something was going on. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it again quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now all of a sudden things are taking a turn. How do they know my wife's name? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son. Again, he's echoing God's promises here. And Abraham had a feeling that maybe they were different, but now he sees that they're different, recognizing that they're either angels or God himself. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? You get the sense here that this laughter was one of disbelief. And you'll see why in a second. 
The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'd invite you to ask that question every time you struggle trusting God. I think it's a great question. And I'll just bring up some of the ones I think we struggle with a lot. The whole idea of tithing, he promises, put me first in this area of your life and I'll open up the storehouses of heaven. Those that don't do it struggle with, is that even possible? Will God do that? If they truly believed it, they would do all that and more because they want the storehouses of heaven opened up to them. And if they talked to people that tithe, they would say they've seen that very thing happen in their life. But we struggle with trust. And so asking this simple question, is anything too hard for me? Poses that question in a way that I think undermines whatever excuse or rationalization or justification you have. If we truly believe that God answered prayer the way he says he does, we would pray literally about everything. Instead of trying to figure it out by ourselves, instead of going our own ways and seeing if it works, we would literally pray to God about everything. If we really believe that God talked to us in his word, we'd be reading it all the time because we'd want to talk to the creator of the universe, the God who loves us, Abba, Father, our daddy who comforts us and strengthens us and forgives us. And every time we had a low moment, every time we struggled with our emotions in some way, we'd be running to the Bible to hear again his voice so that he could remind us that he still got us, that he's still there, that he still loves us, that he sees, that he's able. If we truly believe that what we believed was really real. And one of the questions that I think help us when we struggle in trusting God with something, and he gives us all sorts of promises, is simply to ask, is anything too hard for him? Because in even asking that question is the answer, no. Again, nothing that God asks us to do is too hard. When we sin, it's a direct um, response to us not wanting to do it. It's open rebellion against him. Nothing he asks us is too hard. None of the commands that you find all the way through Deuteronomy, right, and when it lists all the laws are too hard, some of them we just don't want to do. Some of us, when we struggle with temptation, don't want to listen to them. We think we have better ideas. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but she did laugh. That had to be awkward. Even reading it in Scripture just sounds awkward. I did Okay. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that, he, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I don't want you to read over that too quickly. Let me share this again. For I have chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In other words, to teach his kids about me. To teach his kids what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. Again, you guys, we got him for 18 years. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I share all the time 
God has given you forgiveness and heaven and eternity and all this amazing stuff, so don't ever give it away, right? God is just saying here, you've got me. I'm going to walk with your kids. I'm going to bless you as a nation. I'm going to watch over you totally. And you could just hear him say, just don't give it away. How do you give it away? You stop knowing him. You stop following him. You stop praying to him. You stop worshiping him. You turn your back and you go the other way. It's the only way you can give it away. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I love the picture that God gives us in this. He certainly knows all things. He's seen it himself. I mean, he's, he understands just how bad it is. But as part of this, it's, it's truly um, meant to test Abraham and his love for Lot and all these different things. But it reminds you, too, of when they went into Babel, right? It's just going down to check out if it's as bad as we heard. And sure enough, it was. And God judged you can imagine before the flood, God sending the angels the same way. Is it as bad as they say? Going down, looking, and it was. And in each case, there was one guy. One guy that was left. When they went to the flood, well, I don't know about Babel. I guess there was none left in Babel. But in the flood, there was one guy, Noah and eight were saved. There's some parallels between this story and Babel. There's some parallels between this story and the flood. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I think sometimes you read through this and you think, well, could it really be that bad? You know, what is so sin, what gets God to a place where it's so utterly sinful that he has to destroy? You hear descriptions of before the flood and every inclination of man's heart is evil all the time. And then you hear it right after the flood that that just will be so I'm going to cap his years at 120. What does this place look like? I mean, the Amorites, who are the rest of the land of Canaan, aren't going to be judged for 400 plus years from now. What is these guys doing that's so horrible? So the men turned on from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you, because Lot lives in Sodom and Gomorrah, so he picked that up. So Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spirit for 50 righteous who are in it? God says, Far be it, or he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked do. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. One of the encouragements I want you to see in this is because you're God's kid, you can come to God and you can be bold with him. And be appropriate with him, but you can be bold and you can be strong. You can scream and yell sometimes if you need to in your relationship with God. He's big enough to take it. He's big enough to care. He sees the pain behind whatever you're coming to him with. In this case, he sees Abraham and his worry for his nephew Lot. He's afraid with all, with all that there is that Lot's going to be thrust away when he destroys this town. 
It's his only relative out there. It's his only connection to what was. God says, I'll spare the city if I find 50. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I guess recognizing how bold he was. I am who but, am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you still destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. It's interesting, as I was doing some studies in these five cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there was three others, um, they found massive grave sites, and it says that over, over a million graves were found in this region. So this was not an insignificant population. This was a huge population. Abraham's just trying to say, man, if there's 50, and he's getting it down to 40, I mean, he's thinking, oh, okay, you know, maybe he won't do it now. Then he said, and yet he, again, this is only 14 years after he saved the lot. He knew how corrupt they were. He knew all those different things as well, so he keeps going. Then he said, oh, Lord, be not angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's a lot of conjecture on why Abraham stopped at 10. Some believe that Lot had at least six kids in his family, right? Um, two boys and two married daughters and the two uh, single daughters in his house. I don't know where they get all that, but, but some believe then that he stopped at 10 because that made up Lot's family. Certainly, Lot's family is still good. Certainly, Lot's family has resisted the temptation of that city. Certainly, they're still righteous before the Lord. And Abraham had to feel good if that was intent, indeed what, why he stopped at 10. He had to indeed feel good. There's like over a million people there. If Lot's family alone has remained pure, we're golden. I just saved a city. He'll never know, but I'm so excited about it. I can't even stand it. But he stopped at 10 when he probably should have stopped at four. Maybe I should say three. And maybe I should just say the one as the story progresses. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with a face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. One of the things I want to point out just before we get too far into this is God hears us when we pray. Not only do I want you to be bold, and not only do I want you to go to God with everything, knowing that he loves you as a dad does, as a perfect dad does, completely and in every way, I want you to go and pray for your friends. Pray for the people that still need to hear and know the Lord. Pray that he continues to, to pursue them without ceasing. Pray that he continues to watch over you as you go through life. Because over and over in Scripture, it shows that God hears us when we pray. So when they get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and, or Sodom anyway, and the angels walk in, and, and Lot sees them. He's sitting at the gate. It's an interesting thing. In chapter 13, 2, it says that he pitched his tent towards Sodom, right? And a little bit later in 14, 12, it says he dwelt in Sodom. And now here in 19, 1, it says that he sat at the gate of Sodom. 
He sat at the gate because that was a place of commerce. That's where the leaders of the city sat. And so maybe somehow because his brother had saved everybody or, or just because he had been part of the group that came back, he had worked his way into leadership in, the, in Sodom or something like that. But anyway, he saw these two guys come in and he knew the evil of the city. In fact, in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, it tells us that he was vexed by all the evil that he saw in Sodom day and night. He was vexed by the things he saw. He was, he was hurt by the things he saw. And you start wondering, why in the world did he move in? Why, why was he a leader in the, in the city? There's all sorts of ideas about that. Some think it's familial, familial pressure. Um, his wife or his kids wanted to be more in town. Sometimes it, you can convince yourself, if I can get in leadership, maybe I can bring good to this area, right? I can change things in a way that's positive. All sorts of different ideas of why he kept moving closer and didn't leave. But the angel said to him, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast of baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Unleavened bread was kind of the simplest meal. He probably wasn't looking for guests a day, but they, there they came, and he knew the evil of the city, so he's trying to protect them. Unleavened bread, interestingly enough, is, is something that you'll see throughout Scripture. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, have sex with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. I want to kind of paint this scene just a little bit. It's not just the sin of homosexuality here, but it's the that's part of it, but it's, it's the total giving of this town over to lust. Um, I, I tried to think of a, a contemporary example where stuff like this would happen. I, I think of the Duke lacrosse team a few years back where they supposedly raped a girl um, at one of their parties. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I share that as an example. And in the midst of that night, if that actually happened, there was a lot of justifying one after the other after the other going in and and harming this girl in that way. Somehow they justified it to themselves. I'm sure alcohol was involved. I'm sure some bravado was involved or whatever. I, I can't understand, but what you can know is that evil was very present. And somehow they justified and even excused this grotesque sin that they committed. You hear about gang rapes against people in different cities at different times. But somehow this whole town... It, approved of, uh, was party to, it was like going out, let's get everybody together, we're going out for a party, you know, and, and so everybody, it didn't exclude anybody here. It says, where am I? Where are the men of, wait, sorry, sorry. but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. If it's true that, that Lot had kids, male sons, they were part of it. If it's true that they had uh, daughters that were, um, that were married, their husbands were part of it. If it's true that the two daughters that had, were still virgins at home were engaged, they're, they're engaged or their people that they were going to marry were part of it. Somehow this was just an accepted thing 
They had rationalized, justified, and excused this. Perhaps it was because he was an outsider and they were less than, and they just didn't view them as real people, or they were something that they could just go do and it was fine. But it wasn't just the sin of, of sodomy that they wanted to commit here. It was very likely also murder, because who could take that kind of sin over and over without resisting and without being beat up and without dying? The whole town had given over to this evil and had excused it, and it was almost a, a licensed event for everybody. When you think of a town that is one that the Lord would destroy, one that can consume themselves in mass to this kind of effort, is the kind of place that God destroys early. So they came and said, bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went in out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Perhaps Lot also understood something about these guys or not. But again, he was vexed by the evil of the land. He was a leader. He was probably trying to talk them some, into some sense. Let me bring, then he says, I have two daughters who, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. A lot of people, when they go through this and they hear what Lot offered, are just like freaked out. It was a very different day. Let me, let me say that. Uh, women were viewed uh, with not the same rights is part of it. Part of it, too, was the sin of homosexuality, and if they were going to do this horrible thing, at least let's take it down a notch and make it a heterosexual rape. Also, part of it was this idea of, of hospitality. When you took somebody under your roof, you vowed kind of to protect them. None of us can understand how anybody could make that kind of offer. He was desperate. He was trying to find a way out, but it doesn't make any sense, even for that time. But it wasn't good enough. They said, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Lot had maybe convinced himself that he was part of Sodom. You know, they elected him leader. He sat at the gate. He, they listened to his opinion. Why did they stop tonight? Because he told them what they were doing was wrong. He condemned them for their sin, and they didn't want to hear it. I don't know if you've ever been part of a group. I was in L.A. during the riots. It was my last year of college. Got A's that semester. <laughs> but, but the reality is there was kind of a mass mob mentality when the riots went, and there was a lot of breaking into stores and looting, even by people that weren't the ones lighting the fires, Right? And they'd be caught on TV and said, just got myself a TV, you know? And what was interesting is the cops used that to, to, to prosecute them later on, which was funny. But they had convinced themselves that because it was the riots, because everybody else seemed to be doing it, they're going to get theirs. And for a period of time in L.A., this mob kind of mentality, this sinful mob mentality kind of reigned until the police and the National Guard Shut it down. For a period of time, there was, there was National Guard standing on the corner at Subway near our campus with M16s. Gave you a very different picture of America in those times. But people had lost it. They had lost perspective. They had lost right and wrong, and so had the people of Sodom. They had totally sold themselves over to sin. And when this leader of the town rejected them, they went after him. You've never been one of us. 
Who are you to tell us what to do? Now you're going to get yours. And so they started coming after Lot. Then they pressed hard against the man and Lot, man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them to shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping at the door. And so at a time when Lot needed God the most, and after a time of obedience, although kind of weird one, where he tried to protect, protect these two men, God used his angels to save him. And if you think that it sounds a little bit familiar that he struck him with blindness, again, Elijah struck, uh, or Elisha struck a whole bunch of people with blindness as they were coming to, to take him away, and he led them to Samaria and gave them over in captivity to um, Ahaz, the king. And then he asked him to free him, but whatever. But, but the reality is that God intervened and he struck him with blindness, not that they couldn't see, but that they couldn't see how to get into the door. It was kind of a confusion. It was a lack of ability to discern. It was, it left them helpless to find their way back in. And over time, you get the sense that they left and we'll end there today because I just noticed the time. So let us pray. Father, as we start to get into this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's sobering, it's hard to think that this town, this city actually, with hundreds of thousands of people in it, that can't be. But with all those people in it, that they would be so consumed with sin that they would go after two visitors to their town to make them suffer in this way. We think about contemporary examples where there's been mob mentality or there's just been outright collusion in the midst of sin and we can't imagine being in those places or, or understanding the rationale but but they get swept up and they get consumed and they rationalize Father, this is the kind of evil that you've consistently destroyed over the course of time it, it must give us a picture of what the pre-flood world looked like a place where people had just given themselves over to sin through and through. It gives you a, a picture of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and how bad things had gotten where they would treat somebody in this way. And though the rest of the Amorites, it would take 400 plus years for them to get here, they were here now. And you were to rid the earth of them. Father, you are a God of grace, a God of long suffering, a God who is so patient with us again and again. You continue to forgive, you continue to lift up, you continue to call out, you continue to pursue. But Father, one of the things that we learn in Genesis is that there is a point where you just judge and you condemn the wicked and you send them to hell. Father, you have given us forgiveness and Jesus in heaven. Let us never lose sight of that and let us never give it away. And we pray that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.